you this morning, would you open them please to Psalm 150, page 681 in my Bible. Psalm 150, as we close out a sermon series that we began the 1st of August on worship. And I hope that you have been listening as the Bible's been telling us what worship is and how we're to take what we learn and employ it in our worship, both individually and collectively. In Psalm 150, we close out by looking at praise the Lord worship. Now you might be asking yourself, where did he get the name for that sermon from? See if you can figure it out as we read the first six verses. Psalm 150. Praise you the Lord. Praise you the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise you the Lord in the firmament of his power. Praise you the Lord for his mighty acts. Praise you the Lord according to his excellent greatness. Praise you the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Praise you the Lord with the psaltery and harp. Praise you the Lord with the timbrel and dance. Praise you the Lord with stringed instruments and organs. Praise you the Lord with loud cymbals. Praise you the Lord with even louder cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise you the Lord. You ever heard the word cliché? Cliché. What does it mean? It means something that you and I say that requires no thought in our mind, no feeling in our heart, It's just words that we throw around because they sound good or we want to cover the silence that would come if we didn't have something to say. Clichés, they're all around us. Football season has begun. Some of you are overjoyed about it. Some of you are underjoyed about it. But it's here. And... It's interesting what coaches and players have to say about whether they win or they lose the games that they play. And many of them use cliches. Let me give you an example of sports cliches. We brought our A game tonight. We played our hearts out. We didn't get the job done. They wanted it more than we did. We beat ourselves. You hear that at the high school level, the college level, the professional level. It's because those coaches and players have went to the school of cliché. That's what they say. Does it always fit? No, but that's what you say. Sounds good, and you got to say something. Now, some of you aren't sports fans, and I understand that. But you do live in a world... And so let's look at some life cliches. Some life cliches. If you live long enough, you're going to hear these. One step at a time. You heard that before? No news is good news. Don't worry, be happy. It is what it is. 
Keep plugging away. Hang in there. Let it go. <laughs> cliches, life cliches. We use them all the time. Why? Because we want to sound like we know something. And somebody asks us something and we ain't got the answer, so we got to say something. Now, there's also Christian cliches. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Remember what a cliche is? Requires absolutely nothing here. Absolutely nothing here. It's just something we say because we got to say it to sound good. We got to say it to have something to fill the dead space. You ready for these? You sure? I'm praying for you. You say that? We all do at times. Do we pray for the person we're saying it to? Probably not. Do we pray about the thing we're supposed to be praying about? Probably not. But we say it. Sounds good. <laughs> Makes you look spiritual, doesn't it? I'm praying for you. What about amen? You know what amen means? So be it. Some of you out here shouting amen, but if you knew it meant so be it, you might say, I ain't going to say it. Bless your heart. Aaron Wilburn said that's a polite way of insulting somebody. Bless your heart. God bless you. What about the all-time favorite Baptist cliché? Fellowshipping. What do you do? I'm just fellowshipping. Clichés. Again, require nothing here. You can be blank-headed and do a, do a cliché. You can be empty-hearted and say a cliché. Because after all, it's just words you're throwing out to sound good and impress people or to fill in some space where there won't be so silenced. Now, cliches in and of themselves, ladies and gentlemen, are not necessarily wrong or bad, but they're just said again so many times that they lose influence, they lose impact, they lose meaning, they lose purpose if they ever had any to start with. Now, you might be thinking, because I know you're a thinking group, was the psalmist just throwing around some cliches? Because in Psalm 150, in six verses, he says something 13 times. Was he just trying to impress us with his spirituality? Was he just trying to cover some dead space that was found in the Bible? Was he just throwing around some mindless expressions? Was he just saying some things that were heartless? Was he just using repetitious jargon? Did the psalmist really mean what he said when he's talking to us about worship, that we are to praise the Lord? Well, I believe he meant what he said. Now, I want you to think with me just a moment. If he thinks it's necessary in teaching us to worship the Lord that we should praise the Lord, and he says it 13 times. That's called repetition teaching, by the way. You've heard me say many times, I'm not senile. 
I do repeat myself, but there's a purpose. Because I know for some of you, it takes more than once for you to hear it. Twice, three times, 18 times for some of you. Well, the psalmist was a teacher. And he said, I'm going to teach this generation, all generations, how to worship. And so I'm going to be repetitive in how I teach them. And I want them to understand they're to praise the Lord. Now, what does the word praise mean if that's what we've come here today to do? The word praise actually comes from a Hebrew word that has two different definitions. Maybe you can tell me which one of these would be apropos. First of all, the word praise comes from a word where it could be translated prize. Prize you the Lord. Prize. The word prize in the Hebrew means to hold something in value. To hold someone as worth something. To have someone or something that is priceless that you possess. So the word praise means prize. It means to have something in your life or someone in your life that you consider priceless. And also, the word praise could be translated shine. Praise ye the Lord, prize you the Lord, or shine ye the Lord. And the word shine means to put the spotlight on that someone or something that you consider priceless. Now, which word do you think the psalmist is talking about when he says we're to praise the Lord? Is he talking about we're to prize the Lord? To treat Him as worthy? To treat Him as, as, as valuable? To treat Him as priceless? Or do you think he's saying that we should put the spotlight on the Lord? That everybody can see how priceless and valuable that he is to us. I wonder which word he's thinking about. Both. What he's saying is this. Thirteen times he says it. What worship is, is you and I coming together collectively, corporately. You and I getting together by ourselves individually in our prayer closets. And we... Let the Lord know He is priceless to us. He's the greatest possession that we've got. His measure, His worth is beyond anything that we can verbally declare. Yet, we want everybody to know with the way that we talk, with the way that we walk, with the way that we live, with the way that we live, we want everybody to know how valuable He is to us. That's what praise is. We have a prize and we want to put the spotlight on it. And that prize is Jesus. Our psalmist answers four questions in Psalm 150. And I want us to look at those four questions very quickly, very carefully. In verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, he begins by talking to us about the where of praise. The where of praise. Where should we praise God? Where should we let people know how much we prize Him? Where should we put the spotlight on Him at? Notice it says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise you the Lord in His sanctuary. Praise you the Lord in the firmament 
of his power. The psalmist immediately tells us a little bit about the Lord and about God. Now I want you to see that even though these two words are closely related, they do have some different nuances to them. He calls the Lord, he calls the Lord Jehovah. That word Lord you have translates Jehovah. Jehovah speaks of a God who is omnipresent. He has no past, he has no future, he's eternally present. He's always been, he'll always be. It speaks of his timelessness, his eternal nature. So the psalmist says, we are to praise the Lord Jehovah, who is omnipresent, he's he's eternal, he's timeless, no past, no future, he's always been, he'll always be in the present. And then he says, God. This word God speaks of Elohim God, the God who is omnipotent, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is almighty, the God who can do anything he wants to do with just the speaking of his word. The psalmist says, wherever we go to praise the Lord, whether it be in the sanctuary, speaking of heaven itself, whether it be in the firmament, as he calls it, which is earth down here, whether you are worshiping the Lord up there or down here in the heavens or on the earth, remember he is omnipresent. He is Jehovah Lord. Remember he is omnipotent. He is Elohim God. And we are to worship him as creator, We're to worship him as redeemer. He is worthy of that kind of praise. In heaven, he is worshiped as redeemer. We should worship him down here as creator. I've told you many times you need to read the book of Revelation. It's not just about horrible things that are going to come to a world that has rejected Jesus Christ, although it has a lot in there about that. It's also a book about worship. I've told you many times, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 describe two of the greatest worship services you and I will ever be in, which will take place in heaven one day. John is writing about something that's yet to come in Revelation 4 and 5, and yet you and I are going to be part of it. You want to know what heaven's like? It's not just a bunch of people sitting on clouds with wings playing harps. That's Hollywood nonsense. Heaven is a magnificent place, and one of the magnificent things about heaven is the worship. In Revelation chapter 4, all heaven breaks out and worships Jesus Christ as creator. In fact, it says in verse 11 of Revelation 4, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Can you imagine that? One day all creation will worship Christ Jesus as creator. There's no confusion in heaven how it all began. 
No goo to the zoo to become you. God created it all. Spoke the word and it was. And then in Revelation 5, when that Revelation 4 worship is over, where Jesus Christ is worshipped by all creation as creator, it rolls into another worship service. You think I keep you a long time. You ain't seen nothing yet. In Revelation 5, Jesus Christ again appears. And all heaven breaks out and worships Him as Redeemer, Savior. Whosoever will come, He will save. And all the redeemed of all the ages break out. The Bible says in Revelation 5, verse 9, they begin to sing a new song. Now, if you're redeemed, if you're saved, this is the song are part of the song you and I will sing in heaven. It's called the new song. And in Revelation 5, verse 9, it says, We will sing you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and you have, been, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we give praise. Wow. So I don't like worship services. Well, you're not going to like heaven then. Because heaven is nothing but worship at the highest pinnacle. A worship of Jesus as creator. A worship of Jesus as savior. And the psalmist says we're to worship him in heaven, which we will. The sanctuary. We're to worship him on earth, where we're at now. Why should we worship Him? Because He will be in heaven there. We'll see Him face to face. He is down here, though we don't see Him. But we should also worship Him, pay attention, because He's in us. Let me give you a theology lesson. It, it will be painless, I promise you. And it'll teach you something. In the Old Covenant, which we call the Old Testament, God had a sanctuary for His people. The Israelites, God's people. The nation of Israel, God's nation. Others who joined them. They began by worshiping God in a box. They believed that God was in a box. The magnificent, glorious God shrank himself into a box they called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest. And they carried that chest everywhere they went because they believed God lived in the box. And so you worship God by worshiping God in the box. That's why it was a big deal when the Philistines captured the ark. Because the Israelites said they've captured God. <laughs> they've got, they're holding God hostage. That's what they thought. And then they grew up a little bit. And they moved God from the box, the ark of the covenant, 
and they put God in the temple. They put him in a building, specifically in the Holy of Holies part of the building, which the high priest could only go in once a year. And he went in there by himself to offer a sacrifice for the nation and people. He went in with a rope tied around his ankle. He went in with bells around his ankles. As long as the bells were ringing, they knew he was alive. And if the bells stopped ringing, they knew God struck him dead. And the only way they could get him out of the, of the Holy of Holies, if God struck him dead, because they couldn't go in, they'd get struck dead, is they had to pull him out with the rope. And you think you got it tough. But they believed that God had moved from the box to the building. From the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. But everything changed in the New Testament. The New Covenant came to pass. And in the New Covenant, pay attention, God moved from the box, from a building, to a body. He inhabits His people. Is God in this building? No. He's in the people of this building. God is in you. God is in me. If we know Him as Savior and Lord, He's in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. And we should praise Him. We will praise Him in heaven. We should praise Him down here. And we should praise Him because He lives within us. Now, let's carry that thought a little bit further and then I'll move on. If the Lord is not no longer in a box, where He, by the way, he never was, but that's what they were believed. If He's no longer in a building... If he's in us, should we not keep our body holy? Now, I, I know some of you think he's going now from preaching to meddling. Yeah. If you agree that he is in you, and he is, if you have made him Savior and Lord, then what you wouldn't do in this church, why do you do outside this church? How many of you would bring a six-pack of beer to this church? And while I'm up here preaching, pop! How many of you would drink a six-pack of beer coming to church and do that? How many of you would bring your Jack Daniels, your Jim Beam, your Johnny Walker Red, your Smirnoff with you? I know him. I know all about that. <laughs> That's the old Jim Palmer. He's dead, ladies and gentlemen. Old man's dead. But how many of you would bring your liquor bottle here? Your wine coolers? And drink alcohol in here? Would you do that? Right in here, right in the midst of us. How many of you would 
have immoral sex on one of these pews? How many of you would steal from the collection plate? Instead of dropping something in, you take it out. How many of you would roll the dice? Seven or eleven. How many of you would snort cocaine? Right here. I'm talking about right here, right now. How many of you pull out your syringe? Shoot yourself up with some juice. How many of you would use profanity in this place right now? Just, just shout out cuss words. How many of you would say vulgarity? Foul four-letter words that are not you couldn't repeat. How many of you would pull out your telephone and watch pornography while we're preaching and singing about the Lord Jesus? I know I'm being facetious, but I'm trying to make a point and trying to make you think. None of you would do that. Even the most pagan of you would say, I'm not going to dare go into the church and do that kind of stuff. I might do it out there, but I'm not doing it in here because God's in there. No, God isn't in here. I appreciate your respect that he is, but he's not in this building. He's in God's people. He's in God's people. And just like you wouldn't come in here and desecrate this place out of respect and fear of God, keep that in mind with your body. Why would you desecrate your body with things that are unholy? Let's move on. The where of praise to the why of praise. Look at verse 2. Why should we praise Him? Yes, we're going to praise Him in the heavens. Yes, we're going to praise Him in the earth. Yes, we're going to praise Him for His presence in us as we now have become His sanctuary. But why do we do it? Look at verse 2. Praise you the Lord for his mighty acts. Praise you the Lord according to his excellent greatness. The psalmist says there's two reasons why we come together and we praise the Lord. He says the first reason is because of what God has done. He calls it his mighty acts. Now, the word mighty acts, or the phrase mighty acts, speaks of two things. What God has done in the past, generally speaking, and what God is doing in the present, specifically speaking. That's why we praise Him. What has God done in the past, generally speaking, where is that found? In the Bible. We should praise God because he can part the Red Sea. We should praise God because he can bring down the walls of Jericho. We should praise God because he can slay a human tank called Goliath. We should praise God because he can give his prophet sleep on the belly of a lion. We should praise God because of the mighty miracles and the mighty works that he's done that's in the scriptures for us to rejoice in. 
Because the God who did that then can do that today. But we're also to praise God for what he's doing now. What he's doing in you right now. What is he doing in me? If I asked you to stand up and tell me a praise that God has done for you over the last 24 hours, what would you say? I'm talking about last week, last year, 10 years ago. If I said, give me something God has distinctly done for you in the last 24 hours, what would you say? Uh, well, uh, well, I said, uh, well, um, uh. would you stutter and stammer? God is at work in our lives today just like he was at work back then. He's doing miracles in our life just like he did miracles then. He's bringing down fortresses today just like he did then. He's slaying giants today just like he did then. He's parting Red Seas and making a way for God's people today just like he did then. We're to praise him for what he's done. But also, notice it says, the psalmist says, we're to praise him for his excellent greatness. You know what this is speaking of? Who he is. We're to praise God for who he is. We're to praise him for his person, not just his presence. We're to praise him for his heart, not just his hand. We're to praise him because he's God, not just for the gifts he gives us. We're to praise Him for who He is, not just what He does. Did that make sense to you? Let me put it to you like this. You can understand it like this, I hope. Ladies, suppose the man that you're married to or would like to be married to comes to you and he says, I'd like to ask you to be my wife. And you say, well, why? And he says to you, well, I love your mom and dad. They're just good people, sweet and kind. I love your parents, and I love your family. And I really love the way you cook. Goodness gracious, you know how to cook mater taters and beans. And you know how to do some homemade biscuits. You know how to make cinnamon cake. Oh, you're just, you're just a good cook. And I love you because you know how to wash dishes. You know how to clean clothes. And you know how to handle a vacuum and a broom and a dust mop. And I really love you because you know how to take care of a yard. Man, you can go out there, you got a green thumb. You can make those flowers grow, keep that grass green, and you cut a straight line with that lawnmower. And I love the birthday gifts that you get. Man, you just come up with some nice gifts, and at Christmas time, you're just over the top. I want you to be my wife. Now, ladies, what would you think about somebody coming telling you that they love you because of all you can do? Let's just be honest. You'd take off that angelic look you got. You'd put on that demon face, and you'd slap that guy silly. And he needs to be. Because what he's saying is, (laughs) I love you because of what you give me, not who you are. 
And that's what the psalmist is saying. It's fine to praise God for what he's done for you, but praise God for who he is. Love him for what he is, not for what he does. And then he goes on in verses 3 through 5, and he talks about the how of praise, the where of praise, the why of praise, now the how of praise. Look at verses 3 through 5. He gets into instruments now. I don't know how many of you can play instruments, but he, he gets into instruments. There were three main instruments that the Israelites worshipped with. They worshipped with wind instruments, which were instruments that you blew. They worshipped with string instruments. That was instruments that you played. And then there was instruments called percussion instruments that made noise. And they brought all three into their worship. Notice what it says in verses 3 through 5 as we talk about the how of worship. Praise you the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Praise you the Lord with the psaltery and the harp. Praise you the Lord with the timbrel and the dance. Praise you the Lord with the stringed instruments and organs. Praise you the Lord with the loud cymbals. And even praise you the Lord with the louder cymbals. Now, I know some of you are saying, Pastor, that's not Baptist worship. No, it's not. That's Bible worship. Worship shouldn't be Methodist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Catholic or Baptist or Pentecostal. Worship should always be biblical. Notice the three instruments or the three groups of instruments that are used and the praise of the Israelites. First of all, it says in verse 3, they worshipped with the trumpet. Now the trumpet then was not a trumpet like today. It's speaking of the ram's horn. If you go to Israel, you will see, oftentimes they will blow this horn, and it's shaped like the horn of a ram, which it is. And they would blow that. Now, in worship, <clears throat> for the trumpet to be blown means that, tr that worship is important. Pay attention. The only time the trumpet is used in Israel is when something big is about to happen. When a king was being coronated, the trumpet was blown to announce to the citizens of the kingdom to come the king has been chosen. The king is going to be coronated. The trumpet was also blown when you were about to go to war. Citizen soldiers, get your swords, get your spears, get your shields. We're about to go to battle. And they would blow the horn to call the troops together. It's interesting, the Bible says there's coming a day when the Father's going to say to the Son, go get my children. And the Son is going to come, and His name is Jesus. And there will be the blasting of a trumpet when He comes for us. That's telling us that we're getting ready to leave this world. Up, up, and away we go. 
No undertaker, upper taker. No grave glory only. What I'm trying to get you to understand, the trumpet was only blown when something big was about to occur. And yet the psalmist says the trumpet is used in worship, telling us that it's a big thing when you come into the house of God to worship. You're coronating a king. You're getting ready for battle. And you're getting ready to leave this world. The trumpet was used. And then notice in verse 4, the timbrel, fancy word for tambourine, was used. And dance was used. And stringed instruments were used. Now, the tambourine, have you ever seen anybody play a tambourine with a frown on their face? No. The tambourine is a creative instrument. It's an interpretive instrument. And it helps express joy. Whenever you see a tramp, uh, trampoline, <laughs> that too. <laughs> but the instrument is used to express joy. It's used, the tambourine is an expression of joy. When, when someone plays a stringed instrument, there's a room in there for interpretation as they play. I love Kipper Ackerman when she comes and plays her harp. But she doesn't follow script, if you notice, when she's up here playing. She'll, she'll put in a few little things of her own every now and then. That's why sometimes Amazing Grace don't sound like Amazing Grace all the time. Because she interjects a little bit, which is fine. And so what, what the psalmist is saying is, when the Israelites came together to worship, they brought the trumpet. And they blew it because that meant that this is significant. Worship is significant. It's not something you do nonchalantly or casually. It is not something you walk into with a... <gasps> it's something you should be excited about. This is a big deal. You also should come with joy. Joy. Your own expression, your own interpretiveness of, of who God is to you and what God is doing in your life. It should be joyful. And it's mixed with dance. That word dance doesn't mean the twist or the floss or the shoe. Y'all didn't think I knew the modern dances, did you? That word dance is speaking of non-sexual dance that's done even in Israel today where you, you turn, you round. You, you, it's a twirling motion. It's all about joy, is what he's saying. Some of you come to church and you look like a sad sack and a sourpuss. You look like your mother-in-law is moving in with you this afternoon. It can't be that bad, can it? And then in verse 5, he talks about the symbols. The symbols were instruments used by the priest. And they were instruments that gave thanks to God. Are you following what he's saying? 
The instruments were real instruments and they were used in the service, but they were symbolic of stuff. Worship is a big deal. Worship should be joyful and worship should be filled with thanks. When's the last time you just went to God and said, Lord, I don't want anything from you. I just want to thank you. And you just let the thanksgivings go up. Wow. You see, worship is bringing everything together. The trumpets, the tambourines, the cymbals, the wind instruments, the string instruments, the percussion instruments, bringing everything together. And everybody corporately together expressing their joy and their thanks to God. Sometimes you do it with stillness and quietness, but respect. Sometimes you do it with movement and sound, but with respect. Sometimes you do it corporately with reverence and respect. Sometimes you do it individually with rejoicing, but respect. The whole idea is we're all together in this. Reverently, rejoicing, respectfully, orderly, spontaneously who he is. And then lastly, we close with the who of worship. Where is all this worship going? Where is it all going? I know, Pastor. Tell me, sir. It's going to me. No, it's not going to you. You see, we've been taught today's church, it's all about you. Everything's about you. And if you don't get your song, if you don't get your sermon, if you don't get your this, if you don't get your that, you can just get on your little bicycle and ride away. We See, we've made church catering to people. God is not in the catering business. He wants worshipers. Whatever style of worship you like, that's fine. But whatever style of worship you get, you accept and you use it to bring it to Him. Worship's not about what I like or Keith likes or you like or what we like or they like. Worship is about what pleases Him. And a good worship service will include something for everybody, as we say. If you come to a worship service, you're going to get something out of it. You might only get one song. That's okay. You'll get something out of it if you come looking for something. You come looking to grumble and gripe, you'll find something to grumble and gripe about, I'm sure. But it's all centered and circumferenced on Jesus Christ. Wow, what a way to end our study of worship. Understanding that individually, collectively, it's all about seeing this is a big deal. It's all about joy. It's all about thanksgiving. It's taking all of that upward and giving it to Jesus Christ. Wow. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.